Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the Nika riots, a riot that in the 6th century CE threatened the rule of the Byzantine Emperor Justinian I, sometimes known as Justinian the Great. These riots saw half of Constantinople, the Byzantine capital, set on fire and also saw tens of thousands of people rise up against the Emperor Justinian uh, to the point that he was fearful uh, of not just his reign, but his life as well. And despite being remembered as one of the most important and successful Byzantine emperors, Justinian, he really managed to make a lot of enemies very quickly after he began his rule as emperor, and the Nika riots were the culmination of his unpopularity with both the commoners and the aristocrats only a couple of years into his rule. But what's really, really interesting about the Nika riots is the fact that they began during and in part because of a chariot race. Chariot racing was a very bloody big deal at this point in Byzantine history. It'd been around, it had been around for a long time, been, been big since the days of the Roman Empire. And as the Byzantines considered and called themselves Roman, the term Byzantine was never actually used by them. It was only applied to them in later years. They kept the grand tradition of Roman chariot racing alive and all the other traditions that came with it. Traditions like going along to the races, having a great time, supporting your team, and then getting pissed and beating the snot out of the opposing team supporters. You know, traditions that, broadly speaking, are still around today when it comes to professional sports. Uh, It's wonderful to see the ancient ways being passed down through the centuries, isn't it? Anyway, these rites, called the Nika rites, as I say, shook the Byzantine capital to its very core. Half the city was burnt down, as I mentioned, and for days there was total anarchy as these riders became full-blown revolutionaries by the end of it, seeking regime change. Justinian was forced to act and he, well, you'll discover what he did as we get into the story and you'll, you'll hear about the ultimate consequences of the Nika riots and how they changed Byzantine history forever. So a lot to get across today, of course, So let's get underway here, kick things off with the story of the Nika riots, an important, amusing, and then by the end of it, rather troubling event in Byzantine history. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the year 532 CE. This was the year that the Nika riots took place during the reign of the Byzantine Emperor Justinian I, as I mentioned. Justinian I had become the emperor back in 527, five years previously, uh, and his reign is remembered for his ambitious attempts to restore the glory of the Roman Empire. Now, you might remember uh, back from episode 254, get across it, the Western Roman Empire collapsed in 476. Justinian, as the emperor of the uh, the Byzantine Emperor, as we call it, the Eastern Roman Empire, or as they called it, just the Roman Empire, Justinian sought to reclaim the lost lands uh, of the Roman Empire as the emperor of the East. Uh, Long story short, he didn't really, he did a good job, we'll talk about it a bit later on, Um, but he had, as I say, a bloody good go at it. Uh, but instead, before we get to all of that, before we get across some of the the, the later achievements of his of his career, let's talk about where his uh, what what happened during his earlier career as emperor, as he 
as he made a bit of a meal of it at the beginning there. Wasn't a popular bloke to begin with. Uh, Justinian was born into a peasant family. It was his uncle Justin who rose through the ranks of the Byzantine military. Eventually, he was elected emperor, adopted Justinian as his heir, and then Justinian inherited, uh, as I say, in, uh, in 527. Plenty of Byzantine nobles didn't like having a low-born peasant as their emperor, and so Justinian was fighting a bit of an uphill battle from the get-go in order to just, you know, achieve a basic recognition of his authority from the uh, from the high-ranking knobs in the Byzantine Empire. But he didn't make this easy for himself. Uh, all of his grand ambitions to restore the glory and the territory of the empire didn't make him popular. I mean, you might think, yeah, well, great. I mean, go and get amongst it, Justinian. Go and, you know, restore the glory of Rome. Fantastic. Love to hear it. But no... The way that he went about this put a lot of people a people offside. Firstly, in order to pay for all of his lofty goals, Justinian's government raised taxes and went after people who were in debt. And of course, as you can imagine, this put a lot of noses out of joint, mainly amongst the poor, amongst the common folk who are always the ones hardest hit by tax hikes. But it didn't make him a popular emperor with the man on the street, given the fact that one of the first things he did after coming into power was increase everyone's tax bills. But secondly, right, he also imposed stringent anti-corruption measures in government and sought to make all these far-reaching legal and judicial reforms, which pissed off the nobles as well as the commoners who, I mean, the nobles, as you can imagine, they're doing all right for themselves under the table, a bit of cheeky corruption here and there. Um, and they already don't like him because of his humble origins. And to make things worse when it comes to this whole anti-corruption campaign, right, it was severely undermined by the fact that two of his closest high-ranking officials were themselves horrifically corrupt while Justinian is going around trying to stamp out corruption. So really not a good start. On top of all of this, right, during the time that the Nika riots took place, Justinian is also fighting the Sassanid Empire to the east. We heard about the results of, uh, of some of Justinian's conflicts with the Sassanids in Quarter Ass History, Episode 5, Get Across It, Cos- uh, Cosro's Better Antioch. But uh, this, is, uh, this is before all of that, and this war is not going super well for the Byzantines. It's not going super badly either. It's not like the Sassanids are, are completely uh, running roughshod over the top of them, but victory really is an insight for Justinian. And so he's trying to wrap things up with a peace agreement with the, with the Sassanids over there. And as I mentioned, war is expensive. High taxes, whatever else. People are not enjoying having to pay for a war that they're not winning. So poor old Justinian can't catch a break. This bloke was known as a workaholic. He's got too much on his plate. He's having a difficult time keeping everything under control, both domestically and internationally. And in late 531, it all comes to guts for him. In 531, the Byzantines lost the Battle of Kalinicum to the Sassanids. And as a result, Justinian's reputation, which is already in the toilet, takes an absolute battering. He's already an unpopular bloke and this only makes things worse, right? People are being forced to pay for a war that it looks like they're losing. There is tension all throughout Constantinople from the commoners right up through to the aristocrats. The entire city is as tense as a bowstring and you can sense something is going to happen here in order to try to relieve this tension one way or another. It really does feel like a pot on the boil. And I want you to keep that in mind for a little bit here, because it's here that in order to properly understand what brought on the Nika riots, we take we take a bit of a left turn uh, to talk about professional organised sports in the Byzantine Empire. For many people these days, professional sports seems to be an all-consuming pastime, something people devote much of their time and their effort and seemingly their personalities to. 
And it was no different back in the Byzantine Empire. They weren't kicking around a footy or anything like that, but they were no less passionate when it came to chariot racing. Chariot racing was a huge part of Roman culture, as I said, and it had carried over after the split of the empire, and it remained a huge part of Byzantine culture as well, who considered themselves Romans. There were four teams in Byzantine in the world of Byzantine chariot racing. There were the Greens, the Blues, the Whites, and the Reds. Uh, although by the time we get to our story, only the Greens and the Blues are really relevant. And these teams, right, the Greens and the Blues, were so much more than just chariot racing teams. And I don't mean this in the sort of, you know, the, the marketing guff that you might see from your your favourite professional sports team. Oh, we're, we're more than a team, we're a family. No, it, it, it's not so much that. Um, these teams and uh, and the people that supported them, for them, it wasn't a, it wasn't just about chariot racing. These were essentially highly mobilised, highly motivated political factions. So rather than going for the local team, as you might in somewhere, say, like the US, you would go instead for the team who represented your political values, like you would today in Scotland, for instance. Glasgow has two soccer teams, Celtic and Rangers. And broadly speaking, if you go for Celtic, you are a Catholic Republican. And if you go for Rangers, you're a Protestant monarchist. Now, that's not always 100% the case, but in broad strokes, that is true. Um, And the level of passion and enthusiasm these people have for their teams goes well beyond just turning up at, you know, soccer matches, having a bit of a sing and a dance and having a great time watching your, your, your team put the ball on the back of the net. No, you walk into the wrong neighbourhood in Glasgow wearing, funnily enough, green or blue, and you'll very quickly learn a thing or two about Glaswegian hospitality. I'm not exaggerating here. In Lark Hall, right, which is near Glasgow, Lark Hall is such a hardcore Rangers town, right, that Subway, you know, the sandwich shop, Subway stopped using green in its logo in Lark Hall because it would just get smashed up. It would The, the Subway shops would just be vandalised because they had the temerity to show green in public. The local council in Lark Hall is constantly spending money repairing green traffic lights that get smashed up by Rangers fans. There are metal grills in front of the green traffic lights in this town because of the hatred that the Rangers fans have for the green-wearing Celtic team, right? And if this sounds ridiculous to you, it's because it is, obviously. I mean, it's only a game. Why'd you have to be mad? But that's how it goes both in Glasgow these days and it's how it went in Constantinople back then too. The fans of both the Greens and the Blues bloody hated each other. And I'm sure if there were green traffic lights back then, the Blues would be smashing them up as well. There was constant conflict between the two factions, both in and outside the Hippodrome where the the races took place. It wasn't uncommon for riots to erupt at the Hippodrome as opposing fans would get stuck in, have a great time bashing the living daylights out of one another. And then Outside the races, fans of both teams would rove around the streets of Constantinople looking for trouble, you know, presumably smashing up any ancient subway sandwich shops they could come across. And, of course, for good measure, beating the living daylights out of any supporters of the opposing team. So you've got your soccer hooligans today. Back then, you had your chariot racing hooligans. There is no new thing under the sun. Traditionally, the emperor would also have a side that he supported, either the Greens or the Blues. And interestingly, this had some very important political consequences. It was a safeguard of the emperor's power because it meant that while half the population hated him, right, it meant that half the population loved him. 
And so the two sides would never come together and gang up against him. In other words, the emperor would usually pick or have a team just to make sure at the very least he'd have the in-principle support of half the population. However, Justinian, in, again, what was not the smartest move, he attempted to paint himself as being above petty things like a sporting rivalry. Uh, and despite being known as a supporter of the Blues previously, after becoming, an, after becoming emperor, he forswore his allegiance to the Blues and said that he didn't have a team. This proved to be a bad move. The Greens already hated him because he used to support the Blues, but now the Blues also hate him because he's publicly turned away from them. So I hope this helps to set the stage. In conjunction with the general political tension and unrest that's going on in Constantinople because of the rest of the issues with Justinian's rule, the high taxes, all the rest of it, what actually kicked off the Nika riots in late 531, more than anything else, was a dispute over chariot racing and the two factions involved in the the, the world of Byzantine professional sports. Justinian... As I say, unpopular. Taxing people, his war isn't going well, he's got enemies everywhere. But then in late 531, as I say, there is a massive riot at a chariot race. Not unusual, but this one is significant for a couple of reasons. Uh, People are pissed in the American sense with Justinian and his leadership. Uh, They're also pissed in the British sense because they're at the races and probably getting on the jars. So a riot erupted and it got so bad that several people on both sides were killed. The authorities rounded up the worst of the rioters, the ones who had been doing the killing. They were found guilty of murder and they were duly sentenced to death. And this didn't go down so well either. Justinian's forces had not been gentle in handling the riots. And so the whole thing only made it worse. But we're not finished. Oh, no, because before they could be executed, ringleaders from both the Greens and the Blues escaped custody. They fled to a church and they claimed sanctuary there. And so they were safe for the moment. They were out of the reach of Justinian and his authorities. But the emperor made it very clear that he was not going to be letting these blokes off. Maybe he might he might commute their sentence, their death sentences to life imprisonment instead. But he wasn't about to offer them a complete amnesty. And this went down like a fart in an elevator with the general public. Both the Greens and the Blues are furious with him. And this is the general atmosphere as we reach the 13th of January, 532, the date of the next set of chariot races to be held in the Constantinople Hippodrome. People were determined to use this as an opportunity to appeal to Justinian to to spare the ringleaders. He would be making a public appearance, right? The the, the race would be an opportunity for them to to attempt to communicate with him. Justinian was in attendance, of course. uh, And from the moment that he showed his face up in the imperial box, he's been yelled at and shouted at by everyone in attendance at the races. Justinian ignored each and every appeal made to him. He's just sitting there pretending he couldn't hear the cries of the audience and instead just is just focusing on watching the, uh, the, the chariots, right? So because of how furious people were, because of how Justinian had managed to put himself offside with both the Greens and the Blues, and now he's turned up at this race just ignoring everyone, something truly remarkable began to take place there in the Hippodrome. Supporters of both the Greens and the Blues, usually fiercely and sometimes violently opposed to one another, began to unite against the Emperor. 
ordinarily, just like these days at big sporting events, the crowds would they'd be cheering and chanting for their team, hooting and hollering, make their support known. But as the day continued, the Greens and the Blues stopped cheering for their respective teams and instead began to chant at the Emperor. Nika, Nika, Nika. This was a chant that meant victory. Think Nike, the, the Greek goddess of victory. And it was usually directed at victorious charioteers. But now the whole crowd in the entire Hippodrome is chanting it at Justinian in defiance of him. Justinian, stony-faced, he continued to ignore these chants as they grew increasingly loud. And then, after a while, the tension spilled over and the crowds finally became violent. Riots began. The Nika riots, named after the chants that directly preceded the rioting. But rather than the Greens and the Blues going after one another, as was usually the case when riots broke out of the Hippodrome, this time... The crowd is united against Justinian. The riot was directed at the emperor himself, his guards, and the very city of Constantinople. Worried for the emperor's safety, his guards ushered him out of the hippodrome and back to the palace. The two buildings were connected, so he was able to make a getaway safely. But of course, the disappearance of the emperor only made the rioters even more angry. And so the riot spread out of the hippodrome, and the rioters first targeted the Praetorian, a guard station, more or less, sort of like a police station these days. Uh, It had a lockup in it. The rioters stormed the Praetorian, attacked the city guards, released all of those that had been locked up in the jailhouse uh, before setting the building on fire just for good measure. And the riot from there only spread further throughout the city. More and more people got stuck in, burning down more and more buildings, causing more and more mischief and mayhem at every turn. And before long, half of Constantinople was on fire, including the famous Hagia Sophia, the church, and Justinian had to do something. He reached out to the leading figures from the Greens and the Blues, and he attempted to broker peace. He promised to pull back on some of his more unpopular policies and get rid of the corrupt officials that were causing uh, trouble for people, but no, he was told by the rioters to stick his offer where the sun shineth not, These rioters by this stage, they're not looking for concession or compromise. They are looking for revolution. And as the days continue and as anarchy and chaos spreads throughout the city of uh, of Constantinople, Justinian remains stuck in his palace, which is more or less under siege by these rioters, seeking a way to to find a compromise, something that is going to work and and, and get these riots to, to calm down a little bit. But again, the rioters aren't having it. A few days after the riot had begun, the rioters began to put forward a new bloke who they were going to install as emperor after overthrowing Justinian, a fellow named Hypatius, the the nephew of a former emperor. And uh, it's here that the aristocracy come in a little bit, you'd have to think, because you remember that that Justinian wasn't very popular with the Byzantine aristocrats, uh, as well as the common folk, obviously. And it's very likely that the aristocrats had started to involve themselves in the Nika riots at this stage, sensing an opportunity to get rid of Justinian once and for all with a regime change. There was enough political will to turn this riot into a revolution. That much was clear. And so it seems as though the Byzantine aristocracy 
played their part by encouraging the rioters to support Hypatius as a new emperor. Hypatius, interesting fellow, wasn't a very ambitious bloke. He'd had an unremarkable military career, sort of fallen into a job as a senator. He didn't seem all that keen on the job of emperor, but he wasn't given much choice in the matter. The story goes that the rioters actually dragged him against his will to the Hippodrome to proclaim him as the new emperor. The rioters, or, or revolutionaries now, I guess we call them, they'd set up their shop in the Hippodrome. They were using it as their base of operations, nice and close to the pal- palace, of course, and this is where the whole thing had started. And this is where Hypatius was brought and essentially crowned emperor. So he's now a pretender or a usurper or whatever, someone who directly stands as a threat to the rule of Justinian. And so now Justinian who hasn't been able to do anything to quell the riots. The rioters aren't willing to accept compromise. He's, he's now facing down an actual factual coup. So what is he going to do about this? He's got two options, essentially. He can stay and fight or he can flee. And it seems like, believe it or not, his initial inclination was to take the second option and run away. For all of his high-minded ideas about restoring the glory of the Roman Empire, for all of his ambition and his drive, Justinian was, it seems, very ready to flee Constantinople for good. He gathered his closest advisors to him and, and they began to make a plan to leave, taking to a ship and fleeing via the sea. That is, until someone spoke up in opposition to Justinian's cowardly plan. It was none other than his wife, Theodora. Theodora gets up, goes over to Justinian and says, Listen to you, dickhead. You're the emperor. Through thick and thin, mate, you stand by your city and your empire and your people no matter what. And I'll tell you this, I'm not bloody going anywhere, all right? And neither are you. So you get that through your thick head, mate, all right? Well, that's not actually what she said. What she actually said apparently is, Those who have worn the crown should never survive its loss. Never will I see the day when I am not saluted as Empress. Which is a little more poetic, I suppose. But look, the meaning is the same. She wasn't going to flee and she shamed her husband into deciding to stay. Who is born into the light of day must sooner or later die. And how could an emperor ever allow himself to be a fugitive? Theodora asked. Royalty is a fine burial shroud. So pretty gutsy woman there, old mate Theodora, ready to die with her dignity as empress intact rather than flee to the ends of the earth to get away from these riders. So good on her, I reckon. And so Justinian, listening to his wife's words, he says, all right, you know what, Dale? You're right. I'm not going to behave like a bloody cow. Not going to steal away in the middle of the night. Let's stick it out, everyone. Let's go and bloody crack some skulls and show these riding bastards who the emperor really is. And so with that, Justinian decides to deal with the rioters once and for all. And he and his advisors put together a new plan. His imperial reign is at stake. I mean, it has been for quite a while, obviously. But now he's risking his life too, as it's very unlikely that the rioters will let him walk away from this. By now, five days have passed since the beginning of the riots, and while many of the rioters are holding firm, putting forth their new bloke as emperor, Justinian and his allies correctly deduce 
that some of the rioters might be running out of a bit of steam here. And so he summoned three of his generals. General Belisarius, a legendary figure, sometimes called the last of the Romans, thanks to his efforts to restore the empire under Justinian. He summons General Mundus, a former Hunnic or Gothic warlord who had entered into the service of the Byzantines. And he also summoned a general named Narses, a eunuch who was well-known and very popular with the people of Constantinople. Now, what's important about these three blokes is that none of them are Byzantine. Belisarius is Germanic, Mundus is, as I say, uh, Hunnic or Gothic, and Narses is Armenian. And this means that not only do these blokes not have any political ties to the city, not only are they not supporters of the Greens or the Blues or whatever, not only is their loyalty only to the emperor, all of this is also true of the men that they command as well. These generals commanded legions of troops from their original homelands, Germanic, Hunnic, Gothic, Armenian, and countless other places besides. But they weren't Roman. They weren't Byzantine. They weren't influenced by the politics of Constantinople. They just did what their generals told them to do. And that would be very important, as you'll see, in bringing about Justinian's plans to quell the riots, led by these three generals. They would be the ones to enact this plan, to bring the riots under control. And this plan would be based around one simple truth. Despite the fact that everyone was at this moment united against Justinian, Justinian hadn't forgotten that underneath it all, the Greens and the Blues just bloody hated each other. Very cleverly, Justinian used this fact as the fulcrum upon which he leveraged his plan, recognising that this political alliance between these two rival factions was temporary. It was very likely to be fleeting. And so he gave his orders to Belisarius, Mundus and Narses. And here's what happened. On the 19th of January, I think, might have been a day or two later, I don't know. Anyway, on the 19th of January or so, Narses approached the Hippodrome carrying a large bag with him. Now, given his general popularity within Constantinople, he was allowed in amongst the riders without too much of an issue. Despite his close association with Justinian, people were at least ready to hear the bloke out. Besides, he's unarmed and he's only a little small bloke. They could deal with him the moment that they chose to. No worries at all. So, anyway, Narses, he approached the ringleaders of the Blues, not the Greens, and he had a word with them. They're all sitting there in the Hippodrome seeing what the next move's going to be, and Narses, right, he goes up to them and he appeals to them. He says, listen, Justinian, look, I know he's buggered some stuff up a bit. He, you know, here and there he's, he's made some mistakes, but he's only human, mate, and look, let's not forget the bloke does support the Blues, doesn't he? He's, he's one of you blokes. I, I mean, you know, I know he said all that stuff about not really having a team, but, but come on, come on, mate. We all, we all know what's really going on here, don't we? Narses then points over at Hypatius, the new emperor-in-waiting, and he continued on. He says, look at that prick over there, you blokes. Look at that. Look at him. Do you want him for your new emperor? Mate, you know he's a green, don't you? Hypatius was indeed a green. And the Blues, who up until this point had been ready to overlook their hatred of the Greens, they didn't like being reminded that they were, in fact, supporting a green emperor. 
discontented mutterings started to spread throughout the blues in the Hippodrome. This Nazi's prick has made some very bloody good points, hasn't he, they say to themselves. We can't have a green emperor. Who knows what he'll do to us blues, even if we helped him get there. And Nazis played off this natural suspicion of and hostility towards the Greens. He combined it with some of the Blues running out of steam with the whole riding thing, and he robbed the potential revolution of much of its momentum. And then, just to really drive the point home, he opened the big bag that he'd brought in, which was filled with gold. Nazis goes around handing out fistfuls of gold to the blues there in the Hippodrome, and this was enough for many of them. Everyone has their price, and for a lot of these blues, it was, in fact, a handful of gold. They got up, they left the Hippodrome, they walked back through the half-burnt-down Constantinople to head home, leaving the riot and the revolution behind them. So the wind was very much coming out of the sails of the revolution because half of the, half the revolutionaries had walked out of the Hippodrome after being sweet-talked by Nazis. And the Greens are furious. They're getting up and about this bloody Nazis dickhead. He's come here and sweet-talked and bought his way out of trouble. We're not having it. But it was no good. Most of the Blues had left the Hippodrome, although not all, some of them remain. Uh, but most, most had been swayed by Nazis' words and, of course, his gold. And now, after this we see the beginning of the second phase of the plan. While Nazis had been going around handing out the gold, you know, and and flapping that silver tongue around, the other two generals, Belisarius and Mundus, had been getting their troops into position outside the Hippodrome. Once the Blues had left, the troops sealed the exits and then began to march into the Hippodrome to confront the rebellious Greens and the small contingent of Blues who remained. Now, there were only 1,500 soldiers under the command of these two generals, but these 1,500 soldiers are fiercely loyal to their generals, not to the city of Constantinople, not to the people of Constantinople, and certainly not to this new emperor or any upstart chariot racing team. Oh, no. And while there were tens of thousands of revolutionaries packed into the Hippodrome, most of them were just ordinary men. They weren't seasoned soldiers or anything else like that. And so when the order was given to attack, Belisarius and Mundus urged their men on and began horribly an indiscriminate slaughter of anyone and everyone inside the Hippodrome, Green's and blues alike. These soldiers obeyed the directives given to them by their generals without a second thought. It wasn't their job to get involved in the day-to-day politics of Constantinople. They didn't owe their allegiance to anyone other than their generals. And so blood ran freely in the Hippodrome. Anyone who hadn't left when Nazis had been there before handing out gold was fair game. And as the soldiers carved a bloody path of murderous destruction through the revolutionaries, it's estimated that 30,000 people were killed. 30,000 people, 10% of the city's entire population wiped out as these soldiers went about killing without a second thought. It was an out and out massacre. 
and it crushed the rebellion in a single stroke. Hypatius was killed along with essentially all of his supporters and the Nika riots were no more. An overwhelming show of force, a bloody massacre. It had stopped the riots in their tracks. The city was left a smoking, bloodied ruin in the wake of the Nika riots. But let me tell you this, Justinian, whose reign and very life had been threatened, did extremely well out of this whole affair. The massive death toll that had been brought about by the riots was mainly composed of, I mean, think about it, his worst political enemies. And as for the ones who hadn't been there in the Hippodrome, all the aristocrats and nobles who were egging on the rioters from the sidelines, Justinian simply rounded them up and arrested them. Some were executed, others were exiled, but all of them had their lands and their riches confiscated by the emperor. So all in one go, Justinian had secured his rule by removing the worst of his political opponents and greatly enriched his administration with the seizure of all this new wealth. Additionally, of course, he instilled a great fear in anyone seeking to stand against him thanks to this overwhelming response to the Nika riots. He enacted new political reforms, restricting the power of the aristocrat class that had stood against him previously and completely disempowered the chariot racing factions as political entities. Now they were... Now, they were just sports fans. That's all he wrote for them. And they would never again rise to political relevance. Justinian rebuilt much of Constantinople after the damage and destruction caused by the Nika riots, including the Hagia Sophia, which is, of course, still around today. But what's really interesting are the broader and longer-term consequences of the Nika riots for Justinian as an emperor. Justinian now had no real internal political enemies with which to contend. And this left him free to do the very thing he had hoped to do with his reign from day number one, restore the glory of the Roman Empire. This was an ambition that he pursued with great enthusiasm and vigour. Justinian's reign is remembered for his efforts to reconquer the former territories of Rome, something that, without anyone to stand in his way internally, he had a very bloody good go at. By the year 555 CE, two decades after the Nika riots, the Byzantine Empire stretched across the Mediterranean, controlled Anatolia, Egypt, the Italian peninsula, the north coast of Africa, the south coast of Iberia, not quite the territorial expanses uh, as Trajan had uh, in 117 CE. But hey, Justinian still put in a fair effort there with support of generals like Belisarius, Mundus and Narses. However, I do have to say that Justinian, in attempting to reconquer all these lands, he stretched the resources and the power of the Byzantine Empire far too thin. And in the years after his death in 565, its power waned once again, especially with the rise of Islamic conquerors to the east in the 7th century. But all the same, it is remarkable to think that the greatest resurgence in Byzantine power, or Roman power, as they call themselves Roman, since the collapse of the Western Roman Empire was brought about 
by a rebellion that at one point seemed to be the end of Justinian's reign. Rather than disempower and overthrow Justinian, the Nika riots did the exact opposite. They empowered him. They secured his rule. And this allowed him to aggressively pursue his ambition to restore the Roman Empire, an ambition that he was moderately successful in achieving. The Nika riders set out to change the world, and they certainly did, just not in the way that they had perhaps hoped to. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Nika riots, a political revolt that really very much threatened the rule of a Byzantine emperor before being mercilessly crushed. And, uh, of course, all brought about by people just really, really liking chariot racing. So a very interesting story, and I do hope you enjoyed me getting across it for you. Closing out this episode, of course, with all the boring housekeeping stuff, halfhousehistory.net, the website. Uh, find links there to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. If you're having trouble accessing the show, please let me know. I know people are still having trouble getting access to quarter-assed history. If it's not showing up in your feed, let me know uh, which podcast app you are using to listen to it, and I'll try to get that sorted for you. Uh, and if you haven't listened to Quarter House History, do give it a go. It's pretty good. It's, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's some proper old school half house history style uh, content that you, uh, you might enjoy. Anyway, if you want to, want to support the show, a big thank you to the people doing this. Uh, all the people on patreon.com slash half house history supporting me week in and week out. It's, I'm so grateful. I'm so very, very grateful to the people doing that. Uh, and their, uh, their generous support is repaid with all sorts of behind the scenes stuff. Uh, show notes, access to uh, early uh, access to early episodes, early access to episodes, um, uncut episodes as well, uh, exclusive merch, and of course, ad free listening available to all patrons there. Um, and if you want to buy some merch, of course, uh, T Public still handling the Half Hour History merch. The link is uh, there at halfhousehistory.net. And still looking for merch pitches. If you've got an idea for uh, a bit of Half Hour History merch that might uh, might look good and not be too difficult to make, please let me know, and I'll, I'll see what I can do. Anyway. Closing out the show with, oh man, this, so I really just couldn't find anything to do with chariot racing or or riots and revolts or the Byzantine Emperor or Justinian or anything. So I found what is a really dumb joke um, about <laughs> about chariots. I do hope you enjoy it. Um, it's, well, I'll let you judge for yourself. <clears throat> Here we go. Why is a chariot like an old man's testicles? Because both swing low. <laughs> <laughs>